This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew we're deep in the hot hot month of july right yep. now and i'm so hot yeah and i read a book which is called uh, the house of the spirits by isabel allende yeah and i don't have any like funny non-book stuff to talk about this week it's just too hot out it's too it's- hot we're recording during the day which is always weird as longtime fans of the show will know yep we should probably denote in the episode description somewhere this the ones is that were recorded in the one. daytime. Yeah, um, yeah. We've never talked about Ayane before. As I was going over notes for her, I was like, I can think of multiple times when I have thought, "Haven't we covered Isabel Ayane? Mm-hmm. We haven't." Mm-hmm. And then she shows up on Jane the Virgin, and I'm like, "We've clearly talked about. We haven't." No. Hmm. So I'm excited to talk about this book. This is her first book that she yeah, ever wrote. It'll be wrote. good. Like we've talked about a fair number of like South American like magical realism adjacent novels before or actual magical realism. Or actual <laughs> yeah, actual magical realism. <laughs> uh but not her. So what's yeah. what's Isabel Allende's deal? Yeah. So she is a Chilean-American author. Um I think she got American citizenship in 1993. She was born in Peru in 1942. Uh her father, who left when she was three and her mother wound up relocating the family from Peru to Chile. Um, her father was also the cousin of Chilean President uh, Salvador Allende, mm-hmm. uh, who was the president from 1970 1973. We will talk about that some more. Yeah. At some point in this episode. Yeah, because the book is like a, it spans multiple familial generations and i want to say like if i had to guess the period that it covers it's like 50 or 60 years ending somewhere in the mid 70s okay uh and yeah so it it is it's set in chile it takes a lot of like real life events as like touchstones that affect this family um yeah so i don't want to we don't have to get into it more now but uh it is going to come up great um, she, her mother remarried to a diplomat, which meant that she moved around the globe a lot as a kid, attended an American school in Bolivia and an, an, an English school in Beirut. Uh, the family moved back to Chile in 1958. She got married for the first, she's been married a few times. I found a fun interview with her in like the Guardian from a few years ago that was like, why shouldn't I get married again in my seventies? My life rules. <laughs> Um, she seems to have a good, uh, be a good sport about that. Um, 62. <laughs> be a good sport. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, she was working with the UN in Chile and Brussels. Um, she spent some time translating romance novels. Uh, in the 60s, she was working in Chilean television. She was a reporter and a journalist. Uh, at one point, she interviewed, she, she will say that she was a terrible journalist. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh, and apparently Pablo Neruda told her as much, Jeez. the celebrated okay. poet Neruda, uh, who was like, you should go write some books. Like, you're imaginative, and that's wonderful. Um, you shouldn't be a reporter. This is not your bag. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so then her life is upended with the coup in 1973. Um, I think we'll, we'll cover the specifics about it when we talk about uh, some of the stuff in the book. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, Allende is overthrown by Pinochet. Uh, she, he is killed or commits suicide. Um, the she spends about fifteen months still in Chile, kind of helping people get out, like people who are on different, um, you know, wanted political lists. enemies lists. Yeah. yeah, Pinochet sucked. I don't think that's he a controversial thing to say. Killed a lot of people. Yeah, 
Um, and so she eventually books it for Venezuela after some other members of her family were nearly assassinated and she was given death threats and put on a list herself. Um, and she has put some of that in the book. She says there's a quote, uh, because of my work as a journalist, I knew exactly what was happening in my country. I lived through it and the dead, the tortured, the widows and orphans left an unforgettable impression on my memory. The last chapters of La Casa de los Spiritus, uh, narrate those events they are based on what i saw and on the direct testimonies of those who lived through the brutal experience of the repression so maybe we'll get to that i think you mentioned something about the end of the book that you did want to talk about today yeah Mm -hmm. um she was a columnist for a newspaper in venezuela among other things was Uh, she all did pablo neruda also have feedback on that one (laughs) or was she better at that one i don't think so uh, and then she moved to California where she met her second husband in the late 80s. Um, and then she married again in 2019 after that husband and her separated in 2015. Um, she sep- she started a charitable foundation in 1996, the Isabel Allende Foundation, um, after her daughter Paula died at the age of 29. And she wrote a memoir about it called Paula. Um which a lot of folks have said is very effective and, and impactful for people who have suffered that type of loss. Um, and it's a foundation that supports women and the rights of children and, and stuff like that. Um, what? She has honorary degrees from all over. She won the Chilean National Prize for Literature in 2010, the Hans Christian Andersen Award in 2012. She's written some books for young readers, The City of Beasts as uh, a YA book that she wrote in 2002, and it has two sequels. Um, some of her other books include Of Love and Shadows, Eva Luna, Two Words. She wrote a, a biography of Zorro, Andrew, like an origin Ooh. story of the hero Zorro mm-hmm. in 2005, which was then the basis for a musical with music by the band The Gypsy Kings. Huh. I love it. I want to experience it so bad. Um, and what else about her? So this book that I found what I found about this book, she started it as a letter to her grandfather who was dying. Mm-hmm. And she started writing it on uh, January 8th, 1981. We got a phone call that my grandfather was dying in Chile and I could not go back to say goodbye. I started a letter to him uh, that I remembered everything he had ever told me. Uh, he died, but he never received the letter. But I kept on writing in the kitchen every night after work. And in a year, I had 500 pages of something that was obviously not a letter. That became the House of the Spirits. And now she has this ritual where every January 8th, she starts a book. Like that is, if huh. she's going to start a book, I don't know. If, I guess I don't know does if she she's done it literally every year. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> but she does uh, have a, a ritual around that. It was published in Buenos Aires in 1982. It was the novel of the year in Chile. And then it won a, a bunch of similar like book of the year awards in the various countries where it was published, Germany and France and um, I think this the translator for this, Andrew, is Magda Bowden, I think. Is that her name? Okay. I had it up in front of me before. Let me look. Yeah, Magda, Magda Bogan or Bogin. Um, it was published in New, New York in 1986, was the first U.S. paperback edition. Uh, and it was adapted into a film in 1993, I believe. Um, here's what she had to say about it and not she wasn't very involved in it i wouldn't like anybody watching over my shoulder when i'm writing why would i be watching over the shoulder of a director you sell the up the option for not a lot of money and they do whatever they want i (laughs) sold the rights to the house of the spirits i wrote by hand on the contract that i wanted uh beal august the danish director to do the film uh she'd seen another film of his he ended up directing the movie but the producers were german the actors were anglo the language was english and it was filmed in europe so it didn't have much of chile however i think it was very well made uh <laughs> roger ebert did not agree necessarily well about i mean the so, so the the film was well made that is a that that does not mean she liked the film fair that enough does not mean that she agreed with the you know the whole presentation you can just say this looks like it took a lot of effort this look this looks very technically competent it's definitely one of those things that you say when you're trying to talk around when not having a bad opinion about something when a kid gives you a macaroni art this is well made 
this is well this is well made yeah or the colors are very pretty <laughs> uh ebert said and what odd thinking must have gone into the casting of the movie jeremy irons meryl streep and glenn close form a checklist of the quote last actors you'd think of while reading the famous novel by isabel allende widows leader. <laughs> Uh, to borrow Mark Twain's complaint about women swearing, they know women swearing. Hmm. They know the words, but not the music, um, which is his. And it, I think he goes That's on to say weird. in the review, it's like a touring. It's like a theater production when they do like Tennessee Williams in Germany, mm-hmm. and you're like, you're doing this incredibly American play in German, and that does have value, but it's not the same. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, there were other theatrical adaptations, and I think in 2018 there was an announcement of a Hulu project um, that I don't think has been like developed. Yeah, yet. yeah, those, stre- those streaming company things work out sometimes, and they don't work out other times. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, she's gotten some advance money on it. You have um, to make an improbable like fifth season of The Handmaid's <laughs> Tale first, or something. Um, I've got some other quotes, but they might be more useful in context anything else you want to talk about before we take a break andrew no i don't think so i think everything else uh is better talked about in the context of what the book's doing so yeah okay see you on the other side andrew craig i know you love podcasts i love them and I, I love know them. you I love, love to this one. Them. I love to do them. Yes. Yeah. What if there was another podcast that you could love and it starred like your dad or your kid or like a cool neighbor of yours? I would be I would be curious. That's for sure. Well, but th- most of these people don't know how to make podcasts and you don't have time to teach them, Andrew. And that's where the good folks at Artifact come in. Uh, Artifact is an audio company. That captures your personal stories as one-of-a-kind podcasts that you can share with your loved ones. And you could keep them for future generations to hear. They're not going to stop you from burning it to a CD and like putting it in a stocking at Christmas time. Uh, whether it's your parents telling the tale of how they met, because you don't want to ask them directly, or you want a great time capsule of your nine-year-old talking about being nine, Artifact makes it easy and they connect people in your life with professional interviewers and then edit those conversations into private radio quality episodes that Ooh. sound like the real thing because they are. It's how it works. <laughs> uh, they're going to let us make one, and I've got two ideas so far, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Maybe get someone to talk to my mom about birds. My mom loves birds. Ooh, yeah, I saw her tweeting about birds the other day. Get get it? Tweet? Or maybe I think a few of our friends might be fun interviews to like get an origin story of our friend group. I'm thinking of one or two people in particular who might love to talk about all of our friends. (laughs) Okay. I'd be into either of those. I don't know if I would be comfortable with, with that second line being published for public consumption. Well, it's not. It's private for us, for our friends. You might just not want anybody to hear it. Fair enough. Um, but all I need to do is get the idea down because Artifact makes everything else really easy. You just go to heyartifact.com and you select the type of interview you want or make one up. Then you book it on the website and then you record it. It's 30 minutes and then they edit it down to 20 and they've got tools for you to do it over your phone or over a browser window or you know whatever's easiest for the people being interviewed. The bottom line is that Artifact is your shortcut to creating something that you'll keep coming back to year after year. Um, And if you use the code OVERDUE, you'll save $40 on your first purchase. Get started at heyartifact.com and use the code OVERDUE. Save $40 on your first purchase. Hey, Andrew, tell me about the book, The House of... The Spirits, The House of Spirits. The House of the Spirits. Is it spooky? I didn't ask. It's not spooky. Okay. There are sometimes like apparitions or, or ghosts kind of floating around. And that's where the novel gets as magical realism-y as it gets. Okay. Mostly it's not really going like full on into like improbable stuff. Like, I don't know. Usually I feel like the the magical bits are usually more like subjective and nobody can really prove that they happened or not. It's not like a, you know, the girl who cries tears until it becomes an ocean. That, sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Magical realism. Um, so, uh, the house of the spirits, like I said, it is this multi-generational novel, uh, 
a lot of characters in it from this one family, but you're primarily interested in three. So the book, like the perspective of the book is mostly coming from uh, Alba Trueba, which who is a uh, the granddaughter of the other major character, Esteban Trueba. Okay. And uh, he is married uh, to Clara, Clara the Clairvoyant, she's called sometimes because of how she can kind of tell the future sometimes and, and talk to ghosts and stuff. Okay. Uh, but those are the three most important members of the, of the family. Um, and it's only really toward the end that you hear, like, so you're reading this book all throughout. It's mostly, mostly third person. Uh, you get a bunch of references to like diaries that Clara kept that are helping, you know, put, put uh, events in order. Um, And then sometimes it shifts to a first person that's clearly coming from Esteban. Mm. Um, So it's, it's a, you know, I just, I noted it early on, like who's, who's telling the story and what's the deal. But yeah, it's, it's mostly Alba using like uh, not testimony. Testimony is not the right word, but like, using uh the memory of Esteban Tureba and then like the notebooks of Clara to like piece together this big multi-general history and like this this high level look at all of these events that affected this family and and the country and and everything. Okay. There's a as there's sort of a thesis statement of sorts toward the end of the book uh where I don't want to talk about the the entire quote that I highlighted because there's like, you know, important story stuff that, (laughs) that uh, I want to get into as we talk about the plot. But, uh, Alba says, uh, of Clara, I wrote, she wrote the memory is fragile and the space of a single life is brief passing so quickly that we never get a chance to see the relationship between events. Mm. Uh, we cannot gauge the consequences of our acts and we believe in the fiction of past, present and future. But it may also be true that everything's ha- everything happens simultaneously. I can't tell how much of this quote I want to read, but but it all like you you get it. Like this yeah. is, it is the reason why the book is is told this way. And it's I feel like a lot of these, um, what was the uh, what was not not uh, love in the time of cholera, but the, the hundred years of sol one hundred yeah. years of solitude. Yeah, I got big hundred years of solitude yeah. vibes because it is like covering this this wide span of time mostly zeroed in on this one family, but like using their story to tell a bigger one about like the things that are happening in the, in the country and in society at large. Yeah. I didn't, I neglected to go kind of deep into that in the first part of the show. I don't think we need to necessarily, you can go back and listen to episode 229 where Andrew talks about uh, this book by our friend Gabo. Um, Gabo Marquez. Yeah. Uh, Gabo Garcia Marquez <laughs> and um, she got a lot of comparisons to Garcia Marquez I think rightfully I think she has I found some later interviews where she was like I've like had a 40 year career you could talk to me about just my stuff like you don't mm-hmm. just need you don't need to bring his name into it every time which is you don't need to I, but at the same time like yes it probably it probably comes up because people Especially like white English speaking people are like, Correct. oh, hey, here's the other here's, here's the, the other, other author well, from your approximate region of the world who dabbles in some of the same themes that yes. I know. And, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, the Latin American writer boom on the on the international market sh- starts to show up in like the 60s and 70s. Her first novel is in the mid 80s. She's also recognized as one of the first women to break through in this genre and from this area. Um, and it is not surprising that the story focuses on women and a lot of her work does and mm-hmm. kind of using some of the same structures, though not all of her books are magical realists. She'll, she'll tell you that also. Um, yeah, of course. But Even yeah. this one is, is way more grounded than I, than I think Interesting. I think about Marquez stuff. Okay. Okay. Though I haven't, we always talk about like that mythical project where we're going to pick a few of our like very earliest episodes and go back and do we them should, again. And I feel like the, Love in the Time of Cholera is one I definitely do want to do because I feel like I did a really bad job with that book. 
But because um, this is our second episode, it's the first one I ever read, and it I was a real tall order for the second. I finished episode. it like ten minutes before we started recording, and we weren't doing any author research. And, and yeah, I think we yeah. could do a better job with it now. Okay, but I do think of this as being a bit more straightforward, and even like the big like world shattering, like cataclysmic stuff that happens is just like literally real stuff that happens. Sure. Sure. And she cites Mark, uh, Garcia Marquez and, uh, Borges and Paz and Amato alongside American writers, alongside, uh, the 1001 nights as like all of her influences, you know, she, there's a, quote from you her website. You do get like an element of, of 1001 Nights-ish like story within story here. Yeah. Where like it, it starts with the the book starts with this this thing person. You don't know what it is even. Uh, this <laughs> being named Barabbas showing up in like as part of a, the hall of some boat and then you go through like you know the family is in church. You meet you know you meet the uh the mother and father of, of Clara and get an idea of what their deal is. And then you zoom out even a little bit more to Clara's like kooky uncle Marcos who like <laughs> built a big flying contraption and like was a sort of a spectacle, a local spectacle. Man, uh, I love <laughs> a side go- character with a contraption. That's yeah, a good and, trait. And you have to like you go through all of this. So you find like where Barabbas came from and it turns out that Barabbas is this huge dog and all throughout this, you get a couple of sort of vague foreshadowings of major events. Like every once in a while, the book will just dash off like this. And this is how things continued until an earthquake later, like ruin their lives oh God. Or, or whatever. And then you just go back to what you were talking about before. And you'll you just trust that you will get to the earthquake eventually. Sure. It's sure. kind of a thing where, you know, you're going to get to the fireworks factory, but you're not like complaining about not being there yet. yeah you're just like okay we're going to a fireworks factory later now back to this book that i was reading <laughs> okay so back to the book that we were reading uh-huh where do, where else do you want to go you set up I'm our sorry, major I interrupted characters you with my my long my long thing i don't know if you're no i was I, I have a quote where she talks about uh when she was living in lebanon and uh or lebanon lebanon is a town in pennsylvania excuse me um <laughs> and she I uh, was like 14 and my step she says my stepfather had four mysterious leather volumes in his locked closet books that I was not supposed to see because they were quote unquote erotic and this was Ooh. the 1001 nights <laughs> and uh, she says when critics call me a Latin America Scheherazade I feel very flattered <laughs> that is flattering yeah so and I guess that book's a little erotic it's not There's not definitely a lot of boning in it there's a, but it's not like an instruction manual either. No, it definitely should not be. Um, okay, so what else? What is the, like, you talked about, I feel like I have a handle on a couple characters and a big dog, but not really what else is going on. Well, so you you meet this this family and you meet the, the, uh, the oldest daughter named Rosa. And she has, like, green hair and, like, really, like paled like alabaster skin and she just is like an angel here on earth okay and you and through her you meet uh esteban Tureba, who is this a guy who she's like betrothed to but he has gone off to try and find his fortune like he he's one of those a classic character who's like got a name but some other person in the family like squandered all the money and fame and so he definitely has like ambition and an idea of himself as this person who is destined for bigger things, but he has to like, he has to go out and work get his it. way. He yeah. has to go out and get it. And also he's kind of a jerk sometimes. Okay. Sure. Uh, that happens. But as, yeah, so Esteban Troyba is away from home. He is trying to make this mine produce. Um, and he's like his, his idea being that, you know, Sometimes a mine will just like will make you even worse off than you were before, but sometimes you get lucky and it's just like the fastest way to make a bunch of good solid money. <laughs> so he's out working on this mine and Clara has this premonition that her sister Rosa is well, she has a premonition that someone is gonna die soon and it's gonna be a surprise. And it turns out that so her um 
Rosa and Clara's uh, father, Severo, Severo, S-E-V-E-R-O, is a sort of a politically important guy in the community, has been like planning to make a run for Senate for like his entire political life, just like making the requisite connection. These are, this is back in the day where you like started at the bottom and worked your way up and you just, just go on a cable news channel and say the dumbest stuff that you could think of. Yeah. And that's how you got elected office. Yeah. And then a bunch of CEOs give you money behind Mm -hmm. closed doors and then you're a Senator. Yeah. And then you're a Senator forever. I mean, I'm sure a version of that was also happening, but this I is mean, a, this a, is a I work mean, your is, way up story. This is the this is the smoke filled room version, which has its own yeah. issues. Okay, okay. Uh, but um, so he has been, you know, he he is finally on the cusp of like declaring his candidacy and getting this thing that he's wanted for a long time, and he has sent uh like a roast pig or something and and this nice bottle of brandy. And Rosa is feeling a little under the weather, and so she has a little bit of of brandy because these back in the days when it was safe to give kids alcohol. Yeah, sure. <laughs> she's a young adult, but uh, she has a little bit of brandy, and it turns out that it's got a ton of poison in it. Ooh! And it was sent by some never revealed political enemy of Severo, and and uh, Rosa ends up dying, and that was what clara had Had seen inadvertently predicted so like a combination of predicting that her sister dying and then like walking in on an autopsy at an awkward moment which i don't think there's a good moment to walk in on somebody like digging through somebody's guts nope pretty bad clara clara then stops talking entirely for like nine years oh wow um and the most like the the most magical stuff that happens in this in this book is mostly coming from clara like she has this sort of matilda-esque ability to like move objects around when she's distracted or just like her her mind is wandering and she can more or less accurately prophesy the future okay and she can sometimes talk with people who are dead or just i don't know she's she's got this whole thing going on (laughs) okay she doesn't have uh, so discrete Ro- X-Men powers, but she is just, like, <laughs> more capable than the average bear. Sure. sure. <laughs> uh, so Rosa dies. Uh, Esteban Tureba, who you'll remember, had been uh, engaged to her. He, I do remember this. Yeah, he uh, he's pretty upset about it. Uh-huh. Because she was really beautiful, and he was off trying to get money, and he just feels like this thing has been taken from him. So he goes off to this, like completely destitute long abandoned like f- farm kind of thing in the country and he takes up residence in the rundown house and like starts bossing like th- there are there are people who had been working there like lower class people um who had worked for the family and who are still like living in the area who he just starts like bossing around and then and uh and he is like it is essentially enslavement like for a long time he pay he does like build a school to teach them some basic stuff and he provides like food and shelter for them but also he like pays them in script yeah sure yeah so it's you know it is yeah he's a baron of sorts he's a he's a baron and he's got this clear like you know these people can't govern themselves and i'm doing them you know i'm doing them a good turn oh (laughs) by giving them all this stuff and making sure they're taken care of because they're too stupid to look out for their own esteban looking better and better esteban's not a cool guy like later on when they're you know world war ii is happening in europe and uh clara is you know, is like knitting stuff to send to the allies and Esteban's just like keeping up with what Hitler's doing. <laughs> oh no. Just like, I should just like know what he's up to. And no. And in, in sort of a, this I like the cut of this guy's jib way now. And, and this in Esteban's defense, I guess this is well before, you know, the, the wider world knew about like concentration camps and stuff. This is maybe like, it is a, is a political alignment thing. Like Esteban is very conservative, is very afraid of like the communists hiding, hiding under every rock. Okay. Okay. Is very concerned with like the, the right wing, like keeping 
power because otherwise everything will everything will just collapse. Sure, sure. Um, and I think in that that is the sense in which he is admiring Hitler. It's not so much in a we've got to purify the country of yeah yeah like the specific like races influence or whatever. Sure. So yeah, Esteban, he's not a very sympathetic guy. He becomes marginally more so later, but like everybody in his family ends up like hating him as he gets older. He just like systematically alienates everybody with his horrible temper and his extremely conservative politics that basically nobody else in the family shares. Everybody else is either like neutral to Marxist, like somewhere on that spectrum. <laughs> That's a fun spectrum. <laughs> yeah. And did he did you say does he get married? Does he Yeah, so uh he is he you know rest- so he had found some gold in that mine and then he restores the because he's just like single-minded in his in his grief and his like focus on this property. He does restore this you know this country estate to like profitability. He's got he's got farm animals and he's got uh got crops and and all all the good stuff and he starts to build up a good amount of of wealth for himself um he'd be good at stardew valley is what you're saying he would be good at stardew valley if the friendship part wasn't a part of the game (laughs) yeah if that wasn't an element of it (laughs) uh but he so he get and he gets a note that his from his sort of estranged ish sister that his mom who's had such bad arthritis that she basically can't get out of bed. Uh, she is, she is dying and this, he's, he's been out on the farm for a couple of years, like getting, getting things in order and just like working through his, his grief and also, uh, sexually assaulting like every woman in the, like three mile radius. Wonderful. And fathering a lot of illegitimate children who will come into the story again. Uh, I'll I'll read some more of that quote that I read you earlier once once we've discussed a little bit more of okay. the, the plot stuff that goes on to talk about like a specific I don't know if it's like if we're supposed to read it as like Alba's perspective or Allende's perspective. I think Alba is is pretty close to an Allende self-insert if you had to pick a character. Sure. Who I don't rep, who best represented the author's perspective though. I I don't know that she's ever like claimed that or if it's part of the scholarship around the book well and i'm just looking there are similarities in their biographies is what i'm saying yeah and what i don't want to i i don't want to definitively make connections between like who esteban represents in her life if anyone at all because the the quote from this interview in the harvard business review that i read a portion of earlier um just an odd publication for this good interview um is she said that he was a great storyteller um, about her grandfather and that she wrote it so that he would know that she remembered everything he ever told her. So I don't, I don't think that Esteban is meant to represent her grandfather in any way. Well, it it's like possible it. that like Esteban represents somebody in her grandfather's yeah. past. Like it, it, yes, whole, that's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, the whole point of the thing is just to like do this big multi generational thing. And if if Esteban is meant to represent Allende's grandfather. I think the softer side of him that he does present with Alba that he doesn't really present mm, to anybody else is sure. probably maybe a little closer to like the spirit of, of their relationship. Sure. But again, we are, we are like out on a limb on a limb on a limb <laughs> yeah, we're with just, this line of speculation. We're just so. falling in the wind and it's flying back in our faces right now. You know, it's our podcast. Yeah. We're supposed, we should do this downwind next time. Yeah, please. We'll do. Um, okay. But so he, you know, his, his mom dies and his, one of his mom's dying wishes is that he would, you know, he would get married and have children and like carry on the family name. And so he starts looking around for, you know, for women of, from decent families who are unmarried. And one of them who is not married is Clara, uh, Rose's younger sister. Sure. And he decides to start there because he reasons, you know, if, if if Rose's parents were okay with me back then, then that's kind of a step that I don't have to worry about. Yes, I don't have to broach it again. I have already been pre-cleared by them (laughs) as acceptable. And so I will still be okay. Probably. They don't need to check his luggage. He can go right on the plane. Yeah. So Clara, as you, as you recall, did go nine years without speaking. And the first words that she says in nine years is that she's going to be married soon. Oh, and this is, this is before Esteban has come. This is another like premonition of hers. Oh man. Married. 
And it also, you know, they, they meet and they, you know, they, Esteban is like, oh, you got hot, basically. (laughs) And Claire is like, yeah, I'll marry you. And the book does its little bit of foreshadowing thing where it's like, yeah, she had seen the future and she decided she was fine uh, marrying without love. So that kind of sets up a (laughs) dynamic. That's a good line. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, So Esteban and and Clara get married and they, you know, they alternate life between uh, this, you know, the uh, the estate out in the country. uh, Trey Maria is is what it's called. Okay. And or Trey Maria's. I'm not sure if you pronounce that S or not. Uh, But uh, and like this, this house on the corner, as it's called in the city that grows and, and changes as the family grows and changes. It's it's sort of a representation of whoever it is who's primarily living there as the book goes on is this it, the house of the spirits yes this is the house of the spirits okay we found it this is the one um and uh clara has three kids uh uh alba's mother blanca is one is the first of the three and then there are twin uh boys who i th- we'll talk a little bit about uh jaime who factors in when the you know the military dictatorship part of the plot picks up okay (laughs) we'll talk less about uh about the other one whose name is something else nicholas i think uh yes yes yeah nicholas okay um just real quick just kind of a cast list (laughs) Yeah, I, I was, and, and Nicholas apparently is not an important enough character that he's mentioned at the top line. He's oh. mentioned as Jaime's brother, so Great, that, cool. you know, I think that justifies my decision not to find him as interesting. <laughs> like, he primarily exists to set up like this this minor love plot for, for Jaime and to draw a contrast between the two of them. Okay. Because Jaime is like a this doctor who is dedicated to... Uh, trying to provide medical help for the masses, like, like poor people. And Nicholas is kind of a rich boy, socialite, whatever, who like goes abroad to India and comes back with all the ideas that he can't stop talking about. And he's just not, you know, he's kind of a whomst among us. He is sent out of the country before stuff goes down toward the end of the book. And he just ends up not being really an element who factors in. Okay. Uh, but these are the three kids, uh, and they, you know, they they have this life that's that's split between the estate and the the house of the spirits. Um, Blanca falls in love with this the kid of sort of the foreman at Trey Maria's. Okay, um, who is a uh, named uh, so Pedro Segundo Garcia is the foreman. He's the son of Pedro uh, Pedro Garcia who is this old man who's got like a bunch of there's this, this is the other, like, I guess most magical realism, realism moment in the book is there's the season where the, the estate is just beset by this plague of ants that like eat chickens alive and are eating all the crops and no amount of pesticide or anything can get rid of the ants. And then Pedro Garcia like picks up one of the ants and talks to him and then takes him away to the edge of the property and puts them down. And then the next day, all the ants are gone because somebody just needed to tell them how to leave. (laughs) Is this what the movie ants is based on? I don't think so. It might be a bug's life. I always get those. Maybe this is where the, maybe maybe this is where the ants went. The ants and bug's life were on this farm before. That makes sense to me. I like this. Yes. Okay. Sure. Uh, But anyway, Pedro Segundo Garcia's son, Pedro Tercero Garcia uh, falls in love way above his station with Blanca, who is, of course, you know, the the daughter of Esteban. uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so this is a sort of forbidden love that they carry on for a very long time. Um, And there's this whole there's a section of the book where uh, Blanca uh, is pregnant and it's Pedro Tercero Garcia's and like. Esteban wanting a, you know, a reputable last name for the kid, like marries her off to this count who is basically in a weird sex cult. No. Like she finds out 
about it because he's out of the house and she goes into his weird sex cult room. Blanca does and sees like all the pictures he's been taking, like the erotic photos and all the, the costumes and all the books and stuff. And she like runs away from that house. And like, as she is going into labor with Alba and ends up back in the house on the corner. And that's where Alba is, is born. Huh. And, uh, I guess now's as good a time as any to mention that this book has been on some of the like the banned book lists, mostly with references of sex and sexual depravity. Yeah, there's there's quite a bit of that. There's some light light incest. Oh, occasionally, mostly by characters who aren't great. Is themselves. there like st- is there any like steamy romance though, or is it mostly like? What Esteban was up to, and I would I, I wouldn't describe it as steamy necessarily. Like things, like the way that people's bodies just are described is is fairly detailed sometimes. Like it's not a like a fade to black sort of sure deal with with the sexuality. But I don't know that steamy it would okay. factor into it All for right. me. All right, um, I wasn't sure yeah, I mean, from you... those listings what type of sex was in the book, so that's why I was asking. Okay. So you, you get a sense of like, I, I am, I am condensing it way down, but you do follow, like you start with Clara as a, you know, it's like a nine or 10 year old and Esteban is like a, you know, a, a early twenties, something like young man with something to prove. And you follow them as, you know, the, the book ends with Esteban dying at age like 90. Okay. So that's the multi-generational uh, aspect that you're, that you've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, sure. but you follow you follow like, you know, Blanca through childhood up through through adolescence as she grows up and and then you follow Alba her childhood through adolescence and all these other family members like factor into. At the same time you get little glimpses of mostly through um Esteban's like conservative politics, you get an idea of sort of what is going on in the in the country where Okay. The so he becomes a senator, you know, he's he's involved in conservative politics at a, at a high level and has, you know, takes his the communists are coming to get us like extreme right wing thing on the road. Yeah. And but at the same time, like be, partly because elections are at least lightly rigged in favor of the people who already have power, um, there's a there's a point like. Uh, Esteban is worried about how an election is going to go or, or one of the family members is. And, and Clara in her uh, clairvoyance says, you know, the people who have always won will win. And that's generally how things go. OK. OK. Until we get to 1970. Now, years are, it, years are never explicitly referred to in this book. You've got a couple of big events that you can use to, to hang events on. So there's a. This cataclysmic earthquake, which did happen uh, in Chile in, in 1960, that created so, a ton of damn like the uh, Valdivia earthquake, yeah. I think is, is the one. And it caused not as much damage as it could have because like the epicenter of it was further away from like heavily populated areas, but like... This was such, it was like a magnitude, like 9.6 earthquake and the resultant tsunami created 35 foot waves in Hawaii. (laughs) Oh my God. Which is pretty far away from Wow. Yeah. Okay. So so this, like, it is the, the it's the the strongest earthquake that's been recorded ever. Is there like a magical realism tie-in of that earthquake? Is someone like rip a fart and then there's a big earthquake? Or that's a weird magical realism thing to tie. In. <laughs> Clara predicts it briefly, like okay, a few days prior, and like the the scale of the destruction and the way that it like physically and like metaphorically changes the family's lives and the like trajectory of, of several of their relationships. Like it makes it feel sort of magical because it is hard to conceive of an event so big that could do so much stuff, but it is literally a thing that happens. Yeah. Well, that's how a lot of this stuff works. Sure. 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 Um, So yeah, that, that uh, earthquake in 1960 and then the election of, uh, 
Allende in 1970. Uh, yeah. In 1970, like the, the final, like it, you know, some characters had seen it coming for a while. Like you've got a lot of people in the Tureba family who are, who are like socialist Marxist, whatever, like they're, they're on the left and they've all, you know, they've got different ideas of, of how things should play out. Like some of them are trying to, to, win power at the ballot box and then make change that way. And some people say, you know, the people in power will never willingly give it up. Like it eventually has to come to armed conflict. It's, it's not unlike the like institutionalist versus accelerationist. It is. Yeah. That we uh, are debates that are, that, that go on in American politics now on the, on the left. It was my understanding from some of the research I was doing on Allende that the predecessor, I don't know his name off the top of my head, but was, in a kind of like left-leaning administration, but yeah, it was. Uh, I I had read about him a little bit. His name, I'm trying to remember his name, but yeah, it was this. It was this president who was Montalva. Uh, Montalva. Eduardo Montalva. Oh, is it Montalva? Because uh... yeah, I believe. Yes. Okay, Edward. Sure, Eduardo Montalva. But, um, yeah, it's this. It, it was a. It was a left wing person or like a center left person who came in trying to change the system. But and tell me if we've heard this story before, the left didn't think it was good enough and the right wanted nothing to do with it because it was too far left. Uh, yep. And so this person was like brought down by infighting among people who could have maybe been allies and like scheming from enemies and so uh allende comes into power in 1970 on this like explicitly more explicitly socialist platform and there is and esteban Tureba like actively participates in this and it doesn't come up in the book but it should be known that the u.s was heavily involved yeah in the undermining of this socialist government and then in the military coup that resulted so let me yeah um, i i have a little a little bit on that i do want to clarify and i don't know if i just misheard you is allende named as president in the book no he's the president it's just the president okay, okay. but it's clear from the <laughs> physical description and also the time and also how everything happens that that's who it is sure. and there, there's only one other character in this who's like who's like this and uh, he's called the poet and that is pablo neruda yes. himself yeah. so um yeah allende had run for president four times yep Yep, yep, yep. Before finally winning in 1970, and he, he was called. There are a couple of moments in the book earlier where he's just called the candidate. Oh, I ooh, I like that. And kind of everybody sort of knows him because he's been at this forever. And okay, um, and he finally wins in 1970 with a plurality of the vote under what yep. was called the Popular Unity Coalition, but it was not a majority. So the Congress had to actually like ratify that he was going to be president, and it was something in like the high 30s. So it wasn't even a like. 48 percent not that that yeah. would necessarily matter but so start, starting from a position though of not having a, a mandate yep mm-hmm. and from there like further so uh in the book uh esteban is participating in this right-wing scheme to delegitimize the government by sort of uh, disrupting the you know big sectors of the economy and you know bribing workers to stay on strike and just like creating conditions where Allende's presidency is is doomed to fail like th- there is a sentiment and uh Esteban doesn't necessarily share this though he will come to rethink his position on this later but the thinking being like we cannot we don't want to just assassinate this guy and take back the government by force like we need the people to see like socialism fail yeah. so that they stop fighting for it sure yeah in essence um so they you know they the country becomes you know like massively unstable uh and until in uh, 1973 uh, again years and years not named in this book but uh you see events because jaime has become the president's doctor like just through a series of of events okay and he, you know, the the president knows that Jaime is is the son of you know one of his very prominent opponents, but never like brings it up because he, you know, he 
Uh, Jaime is Jaime is on the on the left and believes on in changing the system from the inside. Okay, um, but like he he you know he the president and him are pretty good friends and they get along. But like Jaime is called to uh, the uh, it, it's like a palace, I guess. Okay, like the the seat of government where the where the president is. Yeah, on the day of the bombing and you know the the takeover by the military yep, and he is like rounded up and insulted. And when he is asked to go on the radio and tell everybody that the president committed suicide, he says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so he is one of the first people to, to die from, you know, from this purge that, that happens that results. And, and it's, I think the, official estimate of people who were like killed by this military dictatorship is like in the low three thousands. I believe so. And then like, more and then tens of thousands of more people that yeah, tens of thousands of more people, um, imprisoned, um, or detained in some way. And then close to a million people like leaving the country. Yep. So just like not a, not a great no <laughs> period in, in, Chilean history. Well, and I will like I would not normally cite this, but it was a it was a pretty good rundown of of something like a bunch of things I found in other sources. You can get a pretty good narrative of this actual day in history from history.com, the actual thing that they should be doing and not alien television shows. You could go and you can read a pretty good narrative break like in order of what happened on this day if you just search for the Allende and the, and the coup. Um, mm-hmm. This was September 11th, 1973, um, and yeah, you're, what you were saying earlier, Andrew, about the the conditions being created is like a big part of that history, and like yeah. the U.S. Uh, like Nixon's cabinet, there are a bunch of documents that Clinton declassified that are like a, yeah, a bunch of Nixon and Kissinger stuff that for a long time was denied, but like. Yeah, them and the CIA were all like flat out. We don't in, want in, another Castro. Basically, is yeah. What it was they it was saying. very like it was very Cold War yeah. where you're just trying to undermine every like communist, socialist, Marxist government on Earth because you see it as a threat. Like I don't, I'm not an expert on Cold War stuff, but I feel like backing. Like military dictatorships is a bad look. I think it's a bad. We shouldn't do it. Probably bad. <laughs> yeah, and they, you know, they pressured and encouraged foreign banks or international banks to like not do business with Chile, and so then all of the nationalism or the, the nationalized industries that Allende tries to set up, which are also dealing with companies in the United States who maybe don't want that to happen. Uh, that the, the economy just starts to tank, and yeah, then it, cre- it rather than this happening in 1971, I think there was an attempt, like a, a very early like coup attempt, right after Allende had been elected, that was uh, completely botched and no, it didn't go anywhere, and it actually created like a rally around the flag effect, um, and so it was more important to undermine the entire administration first. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so then wh- how else does this play? in the book because now i guess the equivalent of pinochet is in power or yeah 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 so um back to the family i guess clara has clara has died at this point um and esteban chureba is is like he he starts from a position of thinking that you need the coup and then you can return the power to people who should have it. And you'll still have like a Republic slash democracy, but you'll still have like a civilian government, but it, sh- it will be people who deserve to have it and know how to run things like him and the conservative party. And that doesn't happen. No. And Esteban is like, why isn't this happening? Like I have a bunch of money, but I don't have very much power. And a lot of the people who I thought were my friends who I sort of helped are not returning my calls or can't get me what I, what I want. He just, he finds his, he finds his power depleted and it's not like he, what all the stuff that he thinks and he does like it, it it is enriching himself, but he does also just like genuinely care about what's going on in the country. And that's like, that is the road to like sympathy for Esteban sure, Trueba, sure. is like 
this this bad stuff happening and he realizes it's bad and like admits the mistake, which is like one of the few times in the book he ever admits to doing anything wrong, even though he does a lot of stuff wrong. Yeah. And then like his closeness to Alba, who is uh, who, you know, hangs out with socialists who then become like guerrillas after this after this military takeover happens and who ends up like uh, Allende herself did on like watch lists of of people who the government wants to detain because she's trying to help people get out. Um, and so the, like the, the big action in the last part of the book is Alba, like the, the military comes to, uh, the house and Alba gets taken mm. and Esteban has to pull like every string he has to pull to get her out. But she is being like brutally specifically tortured, uh, by this guy whose name is Esteban Garcia. And so you might recommend, you might recognize the last name of Garcia yeah, and for, and the first name of Esteban. And this is the product of one of Esteban's early sexual assaults with one of the people who worked on his farm. Neat. Um, and he just watched this family from afar for years and years and years, hating them the whole time. Of course. Because he is like illegitimate and he should be entitled to all the stuff that they have, but he isn't. Oh, that, um, that and theme so of entitlement rises... and birthright and things. Hmm. And then so he rises up through the military until he becomes a colonel. Um, he, in fact, uses Esteban Chereba's influence to, to sort of start his career in the military in the first place because he comes and, and Esteban kind of wants to keep everything quiet. And so he's like, well, don't let it be said that I never helped anybody who worked on my farm and whatever. He gets him into the military, starts his career. And so that the other part of that bit toward the end of the book, like, so Esteban Garcia, like assaults Alba and like tortures her. And she is rescued and reunited with, with Esteban Trueba. And they sort of fix up the house together. Like it had fallen into disrepair after Clara had died. Um, and they, you know, they, they record all the stuff that, that happens as a way to, as a way to help make sense of it, but also to like expose where the through lines are. So it's, uh, this is from Alba. Alba says, I'm beginning to suspect that nothing that happens is fortuitous, that it all corresponds to fate laid down before my birth. And that Esteban Garcia is part of the design. He is a crude twisted line, but no brushstroke is in vain. The day my grandfather tumbled his grandmother, Pancha Garcia among the rushes of the riverbank, he added another link to the chain of events that had to complete itself. Afterward, the grandson of the woman who was raped repeats the gesture with the granddaughter of the rapist and perhaps 40 years from now my grandson will knock Garcia's granddaughter down among the rushes and so on down through the centuries in an unending tale of sorrow blood and love mm. when I was in the doghouse I felt as if I was assembling a jigsaw puzzle in which each piece had a specific place uh, before I put the puzzle together it all seemed incomprehensible to me but I was sure that if I ever managed to complete it the separate parts would ha- each have meaning and the whole would be harmonious so yeah, like even the even the bad parts of the story all sort of link together and and follow through in a way that creates a like a bigger like tapestry of like humanity yeah. than any one person's lifetime or any one person's story. And that can, certainly seems like can encompass. That seems like the point of these multi generational yeah, 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 yeah. epics. And and in particular I think that like the magical realism devices allow you to connect those dots in a way that is like unique to certain characters or unique to a certain culture. Uh, well, having, having a character who can tell the future and then dropping that, like, yeah, yeah. Really dramatic, but also simultaneously really offhand kind of foreshadowing about unhappy marriages. Like it's, just talking, yeah. it's just talking about some dumb book that Nicholas did after he came back from <laughs> India about like, about all the stuff that he learned about, you know, taking care of your body and meditating and whatever. And he self-published this book and nobody bought it. And then when it's talking about how nobody bought the book, it just casually tosses off that most of the copies of this get burnt in an infamous fire. And it turns out to be like the military at their house burning 
like half their stuff. Oh my God. And yeah, so that does give it a, like a heightened sure. sense, but the, but then in another way, like it's dealing with the very real and bad like conditions under this like dictatorship and the way that everything deteriorates. And it's, it's, can I, can I toss a quote at you from the 1985 toss, New York Times yeah, review? A, toss me a quote and then we'll, yeah. we'll be done, I think. There's a, there's a few interesting things in this review <laughs> from Christopher Liebenhoff from 1985, New York Times. Gray old lady. Old gray lady? Whatever. Yeah. First line. Within a couple of dozen pages, Isabel Allende's extraordinary first novel, The House of the Spirits, found several ways to antagonize this reader. Did you feel antagonized, Andrew? No. Okay. First, it seems. I'm curious. To- I'm, I guess I'm curious to hear how this person feels antagonized, and then I can say, "Well, I experienced that, but I didn't make it about me." Yeah. First, it seems to be an openly ideological novel. Uh oh. It is obviously going to tell the story of Chile's peaceful socialist revolution and violent militaristic counter-revolution. The reader may not be, I'm alighting here, the reader may not be exactly sympathetic to the present ruling junta either, but he doesn't need a novel to lecture him about political repression. Okay, great. That's the sound I expected you to make. Um, Second, the House of the Spirit seems guilty of that extravagant and whimsical fabulousness so dear to the imagination of South and Central American fictionalists. That sentence makes me sick. (laughs) I just... I keep waiting for this publication to stop embarrassing itself. But this is in back in the eighties. It was embarrassing I, itself. I know. I know. Um, and it just doesn't, it hasn't, hasn't figured it out yet. He does go on to say novels of this length often erode the reader's patience, but this has the effect of wearing down one's resistance. Um, he, complains about some one-dimensional characters, whatever. The Clara, uh, Blanca, and Alba, the mother, daughter, and granddaughter, are complex and vivid women. Seems like you would agree you were interested in them, I, I imagine. And the story's dominant character, the tragically ill-tempered Senator Esteban Treba, is so appalling and appealing that he easily transcends ideology. I wouldn't say that part about transcending ideology. I think his ideolo- ideological journey is like part of the... Is the point, point of the sure. thing. Sure. But if you're just going to like put down a book every time that you think that it's being political at you, then maybe... Yeah. I don't know. Like, reevaluate why you're reading books. <laughs> or just, like, read some... Read a... I don't want to insult any other author or genre. Pick up some Dean Koontz or something. Yeah. I don't know. I also don't... Maybe Dean, maybe Dean Koontz loves, like, right-wing militias. I don't know, but... I don't know. I don't know. You're right. I don't know. Um, it's just interesting to like, it sounds like this book does a pretty good, you know, it's very well acclaimed, but it sounds like even in your experience of it, the bridging of a family history story with a an unnamed but incredibly specific uh, political event seems to have worked. Yeah, and and I and I also think, and maybe this wouldn't have been the case if I had read it at the beginning of the show, like sure, of our journey back as in, podcasters back in twenty thirteen. Yeah. yeah, 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 because the political situation now, not just in in America, but in a lot of democracies, bears a lot. Like there. We are having a lot of the same problems. Yes. Yeah. And I'm not going to, I'm not saying that things are going to go the same way, but a lot of the like polarization dynamics and the right left dynamics and even like the, the dynamics between different parts of the, the right and the left yep. wing, it all like resonates a lot in a way that, ugh, in a way that it's, is pretty uncomfortable sometimes, honestly. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're six months out from an actual, coup attempt in our own country like there's a there's a ton of stuff in this book about how and this is like esteban trueba and all kinds of people about what can and can't happen here ah great in a way that just yeah i don't know like nobody should ever say that i don't think okay i think i support that yeah 
like treat everything as though it can happen there or wherever it is that you're thinking wherever about. you actually are anything can happen there is that a good mm-hmm. thing is it a bad thing it's up to you yeah okay well thanks for telling me about this book andrew thanks for listening to me about this book yeah no problem um if folks who have read this book want to uh write us an email about it you can do so at overduepod at gmail.com hit us up on twitter and or facebook uh at overduepod thanks to trent scott christina shelby re arlene ingrid sal luciana oxana trina molly nicole and many more for folks uh for reaching out to us this past week our theme song was composed by nick larangis thank you nick andrew if folks want to know more about the show where should they go they should go to overduepodcast.com it's our website up there we have links to apple and google our rss feed those are always you can subscribe to the show you also subscribe in stitcher and spotify and anywhere you find podcasts we have links to the books that we have read the ones that we are going to read if you'd like to read along or if you hear an episode and decide you would like to read the whole book obviously there's a lot of stuff that we can't get to in an hour and i feel like we are we are frequently unable to do like justice to a book's like writing style or like that's the weakest translation yeah that's style. the weakest part of our yeah. wheelhouse yeah mm-hmm. um so yeah if you if you want to read this book or any of the other ones uh go there click those links they take you to bookshop.org uh, we get a small cut of that uh your local independent bookseller gets the rest of it and you get a book. Yeah. And that's the deal. Yeah. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Get bonus episodes early. Sit in on bonus episode recordings. Uh, we've got a doozy of a bonus planned for August, which I don't think we want to tell anybody about just yet. But uh, I'm uh, confident that it will slam. Yeah. That's what I will say. I'm, I'm getting ready uh, for an interstellar journey. Mm-hmm. Uh Next week, what are you reading? I'm reading Heave House by Edward Carey. Uh, Heave House. You can also expect on the main feed, I think on Friday, July 30th, is when our uh, next combo episode of Jagged Little Mill will hit the, that's our Don Quixote show. That'll hit the main feed if you want to get those month to month, though you can find that out on patreon.com. So show pod, like Andrew said. That's it, everybody. Okay. We're out of time. All right, everybody. Sorry for getting political. I'm not not sorry. sorry. (laughs) All right, everybody. (laughs) Until we talk to you next week, please try to be happy. And political. That was a HeadGum Podcast.